Father, again, we thank you for your word because it's your word that tells us of your great love for us. Father, we thank you that that salvation itself is all of you, that you foreknew those who would come to Christ, you predestined, you called, you elected. Father, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Christ we've been declared righteous, we've been justified, we are being sanctified, and we look forward to the day that we are glorified. We know that this process is continuing on, that we stand in the righteousness of of Christ as believers, but someday we're going to be made righteous through glorification. Father, give us wisdom into these areas. Some of them, some of these truths are hard to understand. Some can be frustrating. And yet, if your word says it, I pray that we would receive it. Again, we thank you for these times when we get together for uh, remembering all that Jesus Christ has done for us around his table. And I pray that you would prepare our hearts through your spirit. Please give us wisdom because our hearts are deceptive and desperately wicked and we can easily rationalize our sin. And we ask that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts so as we partake together at the table, we come together in a worthy manner. Um, Lord, we do not want to drink judgment to ourselves. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here that has never received Christ, perhaps religious but never has truly submitted and received and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be their day of salvation. Because we realize that unless we believe in Christ, that your wrath is upon us. And so we ask that you would open up hearts that perhaps are still unbelievers. And they would turn to Christ for, as the only Savior. We ask that these things would be done uh, for your honor and glory. And that you might keep our hearts and our eyes and our minds focused on, on uh, your truth. That we wouldn't wander in our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you can tell, we don't have a projector. That's why it's here. So that's why I'm over here. So if I walk like this, I'll have to be reminded. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as I told you a few weeks ago, this has been one of the key passages in my life, personally, in the last three, four months as I've had to go through certain things. Um, And we've been looking at perspective of eternity. And today we look at facing death courageously. Actually, it's part two. Part two. And this will lead us up, I believe, very very well right up to the the Lord's table. Facing death courageously. And by the way, we we get that, the word courageous, out of verse 8. It says this, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And that word confident there is the word confident or courageous, to be well-pleasing, to be bold. We can face death boldly. By the way, I'm not talking about a John Wayne, true grit, 
look death in its eyes and not flinch. Um, actually, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should fear death. In fact, he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know that if an earthly, uh, earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Very encouraging. If this old tent, this old body is destroyed, we have a, a permanent body, a glorified body. That's what he means by uh, building from God, a permanent body, a glorified body in, in heaven. In heaven. But, but notice the last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The last verse, verse 21. Very familiar with probably most of you. This is why we can have confidence. This is why we can be courageous. This is why we can be bold in the face of death. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. Because we remember the victory that he had, he had on the cross for us. And this is what it says in 21. For he made him, that's God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I love MacArthur's note on his study Bible. I've read this many times. I just love this note because it's a note on the doctrine of imputation. How Christ took our sin and gave us, and ultimately we will be made righteous. Right now we stand in righteousness. But let me read the note for you who do not have MacArthur's study Bible. It says this of uh, sin for us. God the Father, using the principle of imputation, treated Christ as if he were a sinner, though he was not. By the way, he was never a sinner, right? He was the perfect Lamb of God. I say that because in some in uh, supposed uh, Christian realms say that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. That's heresy. He, be, he remained the perfect Lamb of God. Uh, so he was not a sinner, but he, uh, the Father treated Christ as if he were a sinner, though he was not, and had him die as a substitute to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would believe in him. On the cross, he did not become a sinner, but remained as holy as ever. He was treated as if he were guilty of all the sins ever committed by all who would ever believe, though he committed none. The wrath of God, catch this, was exhausted on him. I love that. All the wrath that should have gone to me was exhausted on him. That's what we celebrate at the, at the table. That's the first part of imputation. He took our sin. But then it says the righteousness of God. Let me read the last part. As Christ was not a sinner, but was treated as if he were, so believers who have not yet been made righteous... See, we haven't been made righteous. How many of you sinned last week? All right, you're not made righteous then. You stand in the righteousness of Christ. You will ultimately, if you're a believer in Christ, be made righteous, what? In the day of glorification. Not yet been made righteous, that's, that's not until glorification, are treated, are, we are treated as if we were righteous. He bore their sins so that they could bear his righteousness. God treated him as if he committed, uh, as if he committed the believer's sins, though he didn't, and treats believers as if they did only the righteous deeds of the sinless Son of God. That's imputation. So he treated him like a sinner, though he was perfect. And he treats us as though we had never sinned, though we are sinners. And someday we look forward to the day of glorification. 
And that's what we're going to be celebrating. And if you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, then you stand in his righteousness, and therefore we can face death courageously. We can face it boldly. We can even face it with um, <laughs> happy thoughts. Death doesn't have to be the terror that it is to the world. Now again, we looked at, and I'm just going to quickly review. Uh, last week we looked at some, uh, just some major chunks, and that, this week we're going to start breaking down 2 Corinthians 5 more intricately. But again, we found out from the Apostle Paul that he actually preferred death. I mean, again, he says that in verse, in verse 6. It says, uh, no, actually verse uh, 8. Uh, we are confident, yes, well, pleased, rather to be absent. See, we're pleased. We prefer it. We prefer it. Um, he actually preferred death over life. And I told you, that, like, the priority list of Paul would be this. Uh, first option, rapture. Don't have to see death. Just instantly with the Lord. Instantly glorified, instantly have his glorified body. Option two, second preference. Absent from this body and present with the Lord. That would have been his... If you had asked Paul, now tell me your uh, priority list. I'd rather be raptured. Don't even have to see death. Second, I'd rather be with the Lord. I'd rather die. But, because it's more needful for you, I'd, I'm here. Life. See, life was third priority for Paul. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, many of us would put it as top priority. No, he preferred it. That's the first thing. Number two, death to a saint is put in a non-threatening terms. Remember we looked at different terms for, the, for death. One was departure. One was like the breaking down of a tent. The sailing of a ship. Often it's referred to as sleep. Those are non-threatening terms. It's not like terror. The Bible is very clear when it comes to death. No, no. Don't like fear it. Don't, don't like grab a hold of it like life for all it's worth and I have to do everything I can just to survive. No, no, it, that's not how it's supposed to be. I mean, Paul said in Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed between the two, life and death, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, which is far much better. In fact, the third point was this. When he, when he looked at death in Philippians 1.23, he said it was very much better. I mean, that's, that's the highest super, superlative that you could give. He, he, he uses good three different ways, like the greatest, like death is... Far much better. Why? Because he walked by faith. That's why, and that's why he, he repeats in verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't look at death like the world looks at it. Number four, death has already been conquered by our Savior. Again, Hebrews chapter 6, it says, Christ is our anchor. Uh, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That's Christ, the anchor of the soul. But, but he goes on in verse 20, he says this, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Christ has entered as a forerunner. And uh, the imagery of a forerunner was, um, was this. This is what a forerunner was in the first century. It was the guy that as the ship came into port, and the ship couldn't go all the way up to the dock or all the way up to the land, there would be one man or perhaps a number of men, but most likely one, who would literally be jump out into the sea with the rope. And they would drag that big rope that's hooked to the, the sailing vessel to the shore. And then they would wrap that rope around a big rock, something that was stable, and then winch in that ship all the way into either port 
the harbor or the, the land. He was called the forerunner. That's what Christ is to us. He's the forerunner. What do you mean? He died, buried, rose again, has a resurrected body, sitting at the right hand of the Father, intercessing for us, and he has gone before us. That's what we celebrate. He's gone before us. See, we know that as we've trusted him, we can, have a glor- we can be forgiven and have a glorified body. We can have the salvation completed. Why? Because he went before us. And then finally... To despair of death is actually sub-Christian thinking. I know that's a hard thought. Because I've thought about death. Actually, recently I've thought about it probably more than I did up to that point. But the point is, it's sub-Christian if you despair. See, this is something we have to come to grips with. You know, do we want to be around family? And do we want to... Yeah, all those things. It's not wrong to want to have influence. And actually, like Paul says... Uh, to be with you is far much is, is much better. In other words, right now I, I want to minister. That's good. That's a great motivation. You know, Lord, could you just keep me on this earth for a little bit longer because I have some more work I'd like to see done for you. You know, that's Philippians one twenty four. But if He calls us home, we can't despair of it. Okay, I mean, to depart and be with Christ that was far much, very much better, very much better. I'm going to read what I read last week just as a final review. Now, again, that does not mean, of course, as as we talk about heaven, that does not mean, of course, that we are to be foolishly reckless and careless with our lives. No, no, I mean, it's not like, oh, well, if it's better to be with Christ, I can do anything I want, you know, when I find it. No, because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Our bodies belong to God. But an obsessive concern for one's physical well-being or a morbid fear of death is inconsistent with a Christian perspective. It's inconsistent when it's just this morbid, oh, I can't exit this earth. Believers should long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for a drink, and like a poor man longs for payday. That's how we should long. We should long for heaven. In fact, that's a good question for you, just to evaluate your spiritual life. Do I long for heaven? Or am I just hooked here? And then he, and the author ends with this thought. Hope and courage in facing death. Hope and courage. Hope and gladness, let's say. Hope and Uh, confidence in facing death is the last and perhaps the best opportunity for Christians to exhibit their faith in God, to prove their hope of heaven is genuine, and to adorn their confidence in the promises of God. It's at that end where a person exits with hope and confidence and boldness and even happiness that you're really saying, yeah, what that person believed, he believed. He believed what he believed. And that's how we have to look at um, facing death. Now, l- let's move on after this somewhat quick review. And just let me give you just four things of why Paul looked at death this way, okay? Why did he welcome it as a friend? Uh, because, and you can pick this up in verse 1. In fact, let me read verses 1 to 8. And notice the first three words, for we know. I don't know how your version says it, but for we know. In other words, there's a confidence here. 
Verse 1, very clear. For we know. This is a, I'm confident of these things. Well, how, do, how can you be confident, Paul? Well, because I walk by faith. I know these things. For we know that if our earthly house, again, verses 1 to 8, uh, this earthly house, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, there again, he used that word groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So he, he mixes it, right? Verse 6, we're here. Verse 8, but I want to be there. I'd much rather be there. And I think in this... This little uh, eight verses, you see four, four different uh, reasons why Paul would say, listen, this is why I'm anticipating uh, heaven. This is why I'm okay with passing through the door of death. Let me give you some reasons. So like if someone, you know, like let's say you leave here and tomorrow you're walking down uh, Alfred and uh, someone comes up to you and says, uh, you know, you seem to be pretty confident. Yeah, yeah, life is good. But, you know, you have problems in your, yeah, yeah. Oh, how can you be so confident? I mean, what if the worst happens and you die? I mean, uh, how is it that you can be so happy? Happy, And you could go to this passage and you say, well, well let me tell you what's going to happen after I die. Because I walk by faith. Let me, tell you, let me tell you four blessings. And I know these things. And the first one is this. The next body will be the best one. See, that's one of the reasons why Paul can say, listen, I can exit this life because my next body is going to be better than this one. Now, again, if you know anything about Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, I mean, he's beat up, stoned, you know, shipwrecked, uh, uh, flogged, you know. I mean, can you imagine looking at that guy's back? He would have just had scars and caves, as it were, in the flesh where he had been ripped open and then healed. Um, see, he knew this, that the next body will be the best one. Well, he says that if our earthly house, this tent, and he just uses the word tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. And again, we looked at it very quickly, but that first, that tent is an earthly. That's, that, that's the physical body that you have right now. And I'm glad he used the word tent because a tent, you know, is temporary, it's transient, it's it's inferior, it's lowly, it's fragile, it's frail, it's dilapidating, it's decaying. And by the way, we try to keep this tent going, right? And that's not wrong. It's, I mean, I would say this. One of the things that you really have to make sure is, you know, I mean, uh, if the Lord gives you the... Um, you shouldn't destroy it just by, like, eating. I realize, you know, now I'm doing some uh, stuff on... I mean, we've got to be careful, right? You only get one. You only get one tent. So keep it decent. But remember, let's remember this, that God is sovereign. And he also, not only is he sovereign, but he works through providence. And so we can't like always be, like I could look back and say, well, what if I had done this? What if, what if, what if? Forget that. 
No, all you do is you keep moving forward and you're saying, Lord, you are sovereign, you have providence, and I'm going to seek to serve you to the best of my ability while I'm in this tent. And that's how Paul looked at it. He was, and by the way, he was a tent maker. Maybe that's why I use the word tent. Because he was used to fixing holes, fixing you know, tents up. But now he moves on. He says, but we have a building from God. By the way, let me just throw one other thing. In John 1.14, the apostle John, when he's talking about Jesus Christ, he said this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacle. He tented among us. Same type of word. Same word, actually. He tented among us. Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, tented among us. Uh, Christ's body became perfected. Well, it was perfect, but, but it became glorified after resurrection. So he tended among us as well. So Paul moves on and says, listen, my next body, and that's what he means, that we will have a building from God. That's, that's going from a, the physical body now to the glorified body. When he says a building from God, why? why? Because a building is solid. It's fixed, it's secure, it's permanent. It's going to replace this earthly house. It's going to replace this old body of mine. How do you know that, John? Because we walk by faith. Again, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I like that, that little phrase, not made, with, not made with hands. A house not made with hands. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, referring to the sanctuary in heaven, it says... The same thing, nine uh, eleven. not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So now we know what that not made with hands is. It's not of this creation. The body that we're going to get in heaven is not of this creation. Now that's important because sometimes we wonder, have you ever wondered this, like what happens to the guy who's lost at sea, he's drowned, and before long he just becomes fish bait. You know, the shark comes around and grabs him and tears him apart. And now that shark's over in this area of the ocean, this one over here. How does God put him together? Or let's say, uh, you know, you get cremated. And then your ashes are thrown. I remember uh, William Tyndale, the Roman Catholic Church, hated him so much that when he died, they, uh, they both strangled him and burned him. And then they took his ashes and threw him, I think, in the Thames. Oh, no, it was a little stream that, and then it went to the Thames, and like, the idea is this, he's all over the place. How do you put William Tyndale back together again? Well, wait a second. It's not of, not of this world, okay? It's not made with hands, not of this creation. The, the body that we get in heaven is totally different than the one you have. Uh, we don't have to worry about In fact, interesting uh, thought. Every three years, your cells are replaced. So that means this. If you're around 50 years old, you have been replaced 16 times over the years. In fact, they say this. 75% of the dust in your house is you. <laughs> like, if you just leave, shut the windows, you come in, it'll be halfway clean. Okay? <laughs> I love that. Okay. Well... We can answer this over in, not 2 Corinthians, but go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul answers this question about resurrection. And he's actually answering it for the mockers. Those in uh, Corinth that were mocking, oh, resurrection. 
verse 35. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? Now, he's answering mockers. He's not answering a, you know, Paul, could you tell me about the resurrection body? Now, he's talking to people who are saying the resurrection wasn't going to happen. But in doing that, he's, he's going to answer for us, what does the resurrection look like? Okay? And uh, he uses a, a number of different um, avenues to do that. The first one, look at verse 36. He gives an illustration from nature. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that, the, that, that body that shall be, but mere grain. It's just a, uh, just a seed. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. I meant to bring in a marigold. Because if you look at a marigold, you know, you can... I remember when I was living back in, you know, as a kid, one of the things we did, like, through part of the summer, it seems like, was we were, we were constantly getting marigolds. Mom would have us get the marigolds, you know, when the, when the flower dries, and then you pull it, and then you spread them out, and so they were seeds for next year. Okay, so we'd have big things. I mean, we had marigolds all over. You must love marigolds. But the point is, is this. If you look at that little seed, just that one little seed, you would never say, oh, I can see how this is going to be a beautiful flower. Because you have, what do you have to do with that seed? You have to plant it. It has to die. That's how the, it's, it has to be, it has to, as it were, rot. I mean, it has to be broken apart and then a new plant. And see, Paul's using this, and he's saying, listen, from a plain, simple, ugly appearance of a seed comes what? A magnificent beauty of a flower or a tree. Who would have thought, like that acorn, would produce the tree? So, as you look at yourself, you say, well, what is my body? No, no, this is just the old thing. My glorified body is going to be so much different than what you see here. Okay, so that's the first thing. He does one from nature. He just says, listen, like the seed has to go in the ground. It has to, as it were, be dead and corrupted. And now all of a sudden God, and by the way, he's very clear, verse 8, but God gives it a body. Talking about the seed. And to each seed its own body. Let me give you another one that Paul does. Verse 39, he gives some series of comparisons. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for what? Men, and another for animals, and fish, and birds, and, and then even celestial bodies, and terrestrial bodies. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. In other words, God has made all these different bodies different. Some breathing, some not. But then he, look at what he says in verse 42, first part. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Well, what do you mean? Just as the bodies of men and beasts and birds and fish differ from each other, so also will the resurrection body radically be different from the physical. That's what he's getting at. Your, phys- your uh, glorified body will be radically different from your physical body right now. And, and basically what he's getting at is this. You just have to trust the Lord by walking by faith that what you have now is not going to be anything like you're going to have up there. Okay? How about number three? Now he gives contrast. It starts in the second part of verse 42. The body is sown in corruption. That means sickness and death. Do you agree with that? Your body right now is sickness and death. Yeah, we're always fighting that. Now, we've got a pretty good system in America, at least for right now. Health system. 
But that's what your body is constantly fighting corruption. But it's going to be raised in what? What is the word? Incorruption. See, no, not have to deal with the sickness and death. It is sown in dishonor. In other words, you're constantly, dishonor would have to, I think, to do with sin. Constantly fighting the shame of sin because it's in your body as the beachhead, beachhead of the flesh. But it's going to be raised, what? In glory. You know, I think that's the greatest thing about heaven. Well, there's a number of greatest things. Christ is there. <laughs> but one of the greatest things about heaven is that you don't have to deal with sin any longer. Amen? You don't have to go to the Lord and say, please forgive me for the 55th time on that particular sin in the last month. So it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. That's frailty, probably frailty towards temptation. Weakness, just we're weak. But what is, it's going to be raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, you know, natural being uh, limited by time and space, but it's going to be raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So, whereas the physical body is perishable and sinful and weak and has frailty and temptations, the resurrection body is imperishable and free of sin and powerful. And we see some of that actually with Christ and how he, after... um, he was resurrected, how he interacted with the uh, disciples. I'm talking time and space, things like that. But do you see the contrast? I mean, I, do you get excited when you read that? Yeah, won't it be great not to have to deal with the weakness and the sins and the diseases and the frailties and the, you know, all the other stuff that comes along with... See, if you start meditating on that, you start saying, boy, that, boy, that really sounds good to exit here to go there. And then finally gives a prototype, which we won't spend much time on, but it's basically a contrast between the first Adam, verse 45, and Christ, the last Adam. And actually, that's the final part of the argument. In other words, yeah, but look at Christ. Uh, Adam made us fall. Christ is the one that rescued us. And as Christ received a resurrected body, So we will, in fact, Philippians 3 says this, Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, Christ will give us a body just like his, a glorified body. We'll be like him when we see him. So that's the first thing. I mean, Paul, why are you excited about exiting this life? Why would you say it's far better to be with Christ? Because the next body will be the best one. Well, let's, let's give a couple more. The next life will be perfect. That's, that's the second big reason. That, um, why are you excited about going to heaven? Because the next life will be perfect. And we find this in the next three verses. For in this we groan. You ever groan? The word is sigh. Sometimes you groan after getting that bad report from the doctor. Sometimes you groan because it's the conflict you're having with another brother or sister or neighbor or something. Sometimes it's a groan. Why? Because you're just failing again. You know, spiritually. You're just not walking with Jesus. You know, you get excited here and you're singing and you're worshiping the Lord and praise God and then it's family and normal life and sometimes you can really, you know, you look so good here and maybe you operate so bad there at home. 
And you just groan. Look at this. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, let's go all the way to the very end of verse 4. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. That's, that's where I get the perfect. Okay. In other words, the next life will be perfect. What do you mean? Because the next life will be... Look at what it says. That mortality, that's death, may be swallowed up by life. What are you saying? Because there in heaven, we are going to be... Catch this. We're going to be able to experience the fullness of eternal life. See, right now you have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. Those who do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on them. That's what John 3.36. But if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But, you don't, but you're not experiencing the fullness of that life. Oh, you're, you're experiencing life and you have peace and joy and love, but it's only this much. Can you imagine when you get to heaven and it's full? So that's what he means. That mortality will be swallowed up by life. You're going to experience eternal life 100%. Well, I don't even know if I should say 100% because there's still always going to be a growing. I don't know how you explain that. All I know is this. It's going to be a lot better than it is here. Right? The next life will be perfect. Like I said, no more confession, no more grief, no more sighs. Now again... Just so you know, what was happening in the first century, there was this conflict going on. Uh, the the uh, false religions and the heretics were pushing this, that it wasn't good to have a body. See, one of the things Paul was going against with the false teachers was this. They were saying that, and it's called dualism, that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And that was going around in all the false religions Roman thinking, Greek thinking, the body is bad, the spirit is good. Which was, by the way, very convenient for people who wanted to sin. Because what they would say is this, uh, you know, it's just my body that makes me do it. And they would have very ungodly orgies and everything. Oh, it's my body, you know. It's not me, it's my body, the flesh is bad. And Paul would say, no, 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 wrong thought. It's not that the body is bad, it's that right now you have the flesh principle in your body. Ultimately, God, if, if, God wants to complete our salvation by not just perfecting our spirit, but he's going to perfect our body. Okay? I mean, some of the things that came out of that first century is this. Uh, the body, they said, is a tomb. Plotius said, I am ashamed that he had a body. The guy was like walking around saying, I am ashamed that I have a body. Seneca, I am a higher being and born of higher things than to be a slave of my body. Another guy said, it was like a corpse. I'm in a corpse. See, what they, they thought in their false religion and their false thinking, that the best and the highest would be this, that if I could just get rid of this body, just be a floating spirit, and Paul is like, no, God saved us not just to perfect the spirit, but also to give you a perfect body. So again, his idea of, of the perfection is like not some nirvana, nirvana, you know, extinction of the body or, you know, absorption, as one man said, into the divine. But no, God was going to give me a new body, just like he gave to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, He's going to give me a new body. 
And he looked forward to that. Except this new body was going to be free from weakness and blemish and defects. Free of sin. By the way, the free of defects, in the, I'm not talking about this. Like some of you look at your nose and you say, boy, I wish I had a smaller nose. And I can't wait to the glorified body because I'm going to get a smaller nose. Well, just remember, in heaven, nobody's going to care about your nose. Because they're all perfect. Right? There's no comparison. No, we were just talking about the fact that Paul is, is, is excited with the fact that he is going to get a body that, and you see it in Romans 7 very clearly, where he says this, that sin that dwells in me. Verse 21 of Romans 7, evil is present in me. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Because he knew that the flesh, the sin principle, had its beachhead in his flesh, in his physical being. And he was just waiting for the day. I mean, you, you I, Paul, Paul, what is the greatest thought, one of the greatest thoughts? I am waiting for the day that I don't have to be constantly dealing with this flesh, this constant fight with sin. Why? Because he was a spiritual man and he just hated. Why was he constantly doing the things he didn't want to do and doing the thing, you know, and that whole thing of Romans 7? He longed to worship and serve and praise God in absolute purity and freedom from the restriction of a fallen flesh, fallen principle, as it were. Now, when we come to the table, that's one of the things we're confessing together, right? I mean, I hope when you come to the table, you don't come nonchalant, yeah, 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 just give me the, the juice and the bread. No, no. Lord, if you failed, I mean, if you failed the Lord, you need to say, Lord, I failed you. I confess. And I've come to you on this particular sin a number of times. But Lord, I want to have true repentance. I want to move in a direction that I don't have to keep coming back to you. But I am going to confess it that I have, I have, and this is my sin, and this is the area, and these are my weaknesses, and these are my frailties. And Lord, I need you desperately. And Lord, even this, and Lord, I am looking forward to the day when I am with you, and I don't have to keep coming to you, right? I mean, that's one of the things we come before the table. Lord, I'm looking forward to heaven. I am looking forward to heaven. I think those are good things to say to the Lord before we do the uh, communion table. So he's looking for the day when his body is without the corruption of sin, uh, the corruption and sin. Well, let me give you a third reason. The next existence will fulfill God's purpose. Not only am I going to be perfect, not only is my body going to be the best one so far, right? well, the final one, But again, the fact of getting to heaven, having a new body, fulfills the final purpose that God has for me. And you find this in verse 5. Now he who has prepared us, that's God, that's God the Father. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. What, What very thing? Of giving me a new body, giving you a new body. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. <laughs> so, we, so that verse can be split up into two parts. Past, past, present. Okay? Well, past, present, and then ultimately it's going to be future. But in the past, it says, He has prepared us for this very thing. And when, when he says that little part, he's going back to eternity He's going in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians talks about. Um, let me say it this way. In eternity past, now I want you to catch what I'm saying. I want you to zero in here, okay? 
in eternity past, God sovereignly chose believers for salvation. In time, he redeemed them. In the future, he will give them their glorified and resurrected body. For this very purpose, again, there's an emphatic uh, statement there, emphatically stated that believers obtain their glorified bodies in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan from all eternity, bound up in his elective decree. And I know that's a, a, a lot of words there, but the whole point of this passage is this. For me, for you as a believer, to get your glorified body is what the whole purpose was from eternity past. In eternity past, before we were even created, before the world was even created, God chose, and I know that's a hard word, chose or elected. God elected those who would come to him. And it was his decree that they would be saved through the sacrifice of Christ and ultimately end up in heaven with a glorified body. This entire process is all of God. So in other words, the ultimate purpose in salvation is not justification, it's glorification. When we celebrate the table, Lord, thank you that not only have you justified us, declared us righteous, but you are ultimately going to glorify us. And you can see this very well in Romans 8.28. It says, we know that God causes what? And we know that God causes what? All things to work together for good to those who... What? To those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's the purpose. Okay? All things work together. And now just let me read you the, the, last, the next two verses. For those whom he foreknew, that's the predestined, okay? That's before the foundation of the world. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined means, like when you go on a trip, you chart your destiny, right? I'm, I'm going to plan on going from here to there. When, when, when God uh, foreknew you, he predestined you. He said, I'm going to take this person who is a sinner from here to there. And he's going to, have to, he's going to have to go through the sacrifice of my son. He's going to have to receive my son, but this is the plan. This is the, the uh, predetermined, predestined plan to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also, what's the next word, you know? Called. And those he called, he also Justified, that's declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that word glorified is in the past tense. Wait, none of you are glorified yet. Hey, do you realize that those who have gone before us aren't glorified either? They're not glorified yet. They won't be glorified till it all happens together. But he puts it in the past. Why? Because it is so certain, because it's God that's accomplishing the... Uh, the glorification that he, he said, those he justified, he also glorified. That's how certain it is. This is the point. God puts his name on it. I will accomplish this purpose. It's like, uh, you know, Philippians uh, 1, verse 6. Confident of this very thing. He who begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. So again, his purpose is not just to justify us, but to conform us to the image of his son. Well, what is his son? His son has a glorified body. He's going he's to give us a glorified body because he wants to conform us to the image of his son. So, those whom God called, in fact, you could say it this way, those whom the Father called and predestined, uh, foreknew, uh, 
predestined and called, he gave us, if you want to say it this way, as a love gift to the Son. In uh, John chapter 6, it says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What do you mean gives me? God gave to Christ certain to be certain individuals to be his bride. And, and now, and what Christ did is he came to this earth to die for his bride. I believe very, very clearly, scripture is very clear, that Jesus Christ died for his bride. Do you believe that? All right. Well, that means he died for those that God had given to him. Go over to John chapter 17, very quickly. I knew I wouldn't. In fact, I think we'll just end on this point. We'll have to pick up the next one next time. But look at John 17. And and you're going to see this phrase a number of times. uh, That you have given me. Now this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. This is before he goes to the cross. This is where he is praying for us. In fact, this is one of the best, this is the only, actually the only illustration of, of what he is doing right now in heaven. What is Christ doing right now? He is interceding for us. This is an example on the earth when he was interceding for us. But look at verse 2. It says, uh, as, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should, should give eternal life to as many... Now catch this. This is the Son speaking about himself to the Father. As you have given him to as many as you have given him... What do you mean? Jesus saying this, Father, you have given these to me, and I've kept them safe. Go down to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. Verse 8, I have given to them these words which you have given me. Verse 9, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. Verse 11, Second part, keep through your name those whom you have given me. (laughs) The Father chose, gave as a love gift to the Son those whom were called to eternal life. And the Son's purpose is to come to this earth and to redeem his bride that the Father gave. Now, Final point for today. That's in the past. Let's see what's happened in the present. Because the reality is this. I'm still, I still have sin. And by the way, I love sin. There's times where when I sin, I feel like it's like a a hook in my jaw being dragged. Do you ever like sin? Now let me put it in that context. You know, you, you start talking and you get angry and angry and you just want to blow and you just, and it actually makes you feel good to blow. Uh, you love sin, right? Or selfishness takes over and, you know, like Paul Tripp says, and I get the bigger bowl of ice cream, you know, and I don't care about my kids. I don't, at that moment, it's all about me. We all love sin. Lord, how do I know? I mean, what's the guarantee I'm going to be able to get to heaven? I mean, I've received you as my Lord and Savior. Well, wait, he's given us what? Who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's it's the word Erebon. Some of your versions say the pledge. This word Erebon, this word guarantee or pledge, it means down payment. 
And it was used often in the first century for when you purchased a big purchase, you would put a down payment, right? Let's say it's worth, uh, you know, 30,000 denarii, you might put down 5,000 denarii. Down payment. In other words, I'm serious about this purchase. I'm going to be back. I'll give you the rest. It's a down payment. This is mine now, right? Because I've already put down five. I'm going to pay you the rest. It's, it's just the down payment, though. It's not the full amount. That's how the Spirit of God is in our life. He's the down payment. He's the first installment. Uh, you could say it this way. He's the engagement ring. Why does a man give an engagement to a ring to a woman? Because I want you to be mine someday. Right now you are mine, but not in the full sense. But I'm going to be back. Right? The Spirit, again, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8 says. Uh, this same word, guarantee, is uh, in, found in 2 Corinthians, this book. In chapter 1, it says, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians 1, 4, 14, 1, 14, it says, A pledge of an our inheritance. So, God says, listen, I've started this process. It began in eternity past. You were purchased by my son through his blood. But now that you've received my son, I'm giving you a, I've given you a down payment. A first installment. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the Spirit of God. He's going to be in your heart. You're going to, you need to follow him. What does the Spirit of God do in our lives? He he indwells us, but He also convicts us. He shows us. He illumines our hearts. See, He's the down payment. Let me read this. The indwelling Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that believers are His possession and that He will redeem them to the praise of His glory. For that reason, it is ludicrous to believe that Christians can lose their salvation. You... If, if he's the guarantee, if, if what I just read is true, then you can't lose your salvation. By the way, should we praise the Lord through the, through the Lord's table for that? Amen. Began by him, it's going to end with him. Nothing can inter- interrupt the plan of God set in motion in eternity past, which is election. And has pledged himself to carry through until eternity future, which is glorification. And then this author says this, to argue otherwise is to assume that God, now catch this, that God is incapable of achieving his purposes and thus it diminishes God's glory. Because if God started the process, he says, I'm going to finish it. And he says this, you know what? If it was up to you about your salvation, you know what you would do? You'd lose it. So I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to to be with you and he's going to continue down that path because I chose you to ultimately glorify you. And it's, it's, and it's on my shoulders to get that done. But there is something we need to do. And that is walk by the Spirit. We need to be filled by the Spirit. In other words, as God works in our lives, we need to be sensitive to what God is doing in our life. And some of you may be doing this. You know, I know I'm saved. I know I'm secure. I know the Spirit. But I'm going to live for me. And God is working in your life. And I, and I, I mean, if it's true that you have the Spirit, He's going to be uh, convicting you of selfishness and pride and arrogance and worry. 
and all the other sins that are out there. And I, I'm going to ask you, before you take the table, make sure you're submitting to what God wants to do in your life. Don't come with an arrogant attitude. Lord, I know I'm saved and I know I'm going to get there and I'm just going to live for myself. If God is speaking to your heart, make sure you are teachable and humble and submissive and willing to confess, Lord, I want to walk with you because you don't want to come before the table in an unworthy manner. So let's bow our heads and ushers come forward as we partake at the table. Let's bow our heads again. Make sure you prepare your hearts. Father, we ask that you would, again, through your spirit, who has been given to us as the pledge, that you would prepare our hearts, that we might partake of this table, which is really proclaiming that we are unified with you and one another, that we would take it in a, in a worthy manner. Father, again, we thank you that salvation was thought of by you, planned by you, determined by you, all the way to the end while we, when we end up in, in glory with a glorified body. And we will say again, as Philippians says, that we are confident, just very confident that since you've begun this work, that you will finish it. And we thank you for that because we know that if salvation was left up to ourselves, we would lose it. So again, we come to this table saying that we are unified, that we're walking with you, and that we are very, very grateful for all that you have done in our lives. Father, let us partake in a way that's pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Corinthians says, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread.
Bill Baker, would you return thanks? When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.